0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. We want to remind you, those of you heading out for spring break next weekend, uh, with all the schools in the area celebrating at the same time, we encourage you to come on Thursday night, join us in this conversation. Join with your church family and community. On Thursday nights at 6.45, it's the first of our four weekends. We have one on Thursday night, three on Sundays, and I uh, just want to encourage you to make that a part of your plan, uh, to worship and fellowship with us uh, on your way out of town, and we hope you enjoy your spring break while you're out. We're beginning this new series today. It'll take us for six weeks. It's a series entitled, What If I Told You? We're going to be looking at the teachings of Jesus that for some of us may catch us off guard, may make us wonder, is that... Really? Did he say that? Did he mean that? What does he mean here? We want to talk to you about this, because this series is nothing less than a battle for the lordship of Jesus, just a battle for his lordship, because today it is so common to hear people talk about their faith and what they're addressing is salvation. I'm going to heaven one day. I'm going to heaven one day. I've been saved. For what? Saved from hell? Yes, but saved for what? What? The lordship of Jesus needs defended, and if we're not defending it within the church, then that that lordship will never extend outside to our communities, to our neighborhoods, to the relationships that we value. And so we're going to begin this series by just doing that, focusing. This will not be a series that makes us comfortable. My intention is not to make you uncomfortable, but it's to have a conversation, a real conversation. If, If I were a medical doctor and I found out that you had an illness that could be healed, and that you could be made well. But I didn't want to offend you. I didn't want to hurt your feelings. I didn't want to inconvenience you. And I came out and said you're fine. Go home. Live your life. Everything will be great. That's medical malpractice. As a pastor. If there are things happening in our, in our community as a whole. And we as a church are no different than our community as a whole. It is spiritual malpractice to not bring it up. To not mention it for the purpose of healing and correction. And living the life we're called to live. This series will make us uncomfortable. It will cause each one of us to have some difficult conversations with our own heart, and I hope you'll risk having those. It'll cause us to have some difficult conversations in our own homes, to overcome some of the tendencies and the defaults that we have fallen into that are not taking us where we have pledged to go. It'll challenge us to put away some of the affirmations of our culture that are in direct opposition to what Jesus has set as the standard. The world does not get to redefine Jesus. He redefines the world. And it's going to cause us and challenge us to take his word as our guide, not our feelings, not our desires. See, this is going to be a repeated call to repent. And to repent means to turn from what you're doing to do the better thing. To turn from what you're thinking to think the better thing and to respond in the better way. The undergirding question of this entire text is, are we coming to Jesus on his terms or are we trying to adjust the terms? You see, when you listen to what was just read for us, I, I want to give you the context. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. A group of people that are not his disciples, but are considering being his disciples, come to him and say, Start following him. And he turns around. And he tells them, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. But I want you to find hope here. Because he is also saying at the same time, if you do this, you can be. And if you do this, you can be. And if you would do this, you can be. There's hope in his words, but he is drawing the line. Can you imagine standing in that crowd and hearing you have to hate your mom and dad? your spouse, your children, hearing him say that you have to take the only life you'll get and end it, that you're supposed to give up everything. This is not how you win a crowd over. This is not how you get large attendance the next Sunday. But I want you to understand, if, if you'll allow me to, in an attempt not to protect myself, or but most of all, not to commit spiritual malpractice, The Christianity that is most prominent in our country, in our nation, is the Christianity that somehow believes that you can believe in Jesus and not follow him. That you can agree with him and nothing changes. That we don't live any different than how we lived before him. I want you to know the scriptures know nothing of this. At no no point in time do the scriptures understand that to be discipleship at all. When following Jesus costs us nothing, when everything is asked, we have to look and ask ourselves, are we really disciples of Jesus? We have a say in our relationship with him. We make a contribution that's significant, but it's all founded on him and his definition of what it means to follow him. What I'd like to do this morning is show you three different ways in which Jesus laid out basic requirements for discipleship. Now, they're not basic, meaning easy, but they are principally the basic Discipleship demands requirements that he makes of us. Let's begin with the first. Jesus requires a shocking level of love. And he knows it too. It's a shocking level. Verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, I've read the scriptures. I know it says that to honor your mother and father is the first commandment that comes with a promise. It goes all the way back to the 10 words, the 10 commands of Scripture. So how can it be that I'm supposed to honor my mother and father and then Jesus turns around and says, you got to hate them. Well, the word hate doesn't mean despise. It doesn't mean to devalue. It's a comparative term he's using. He's using shocking imagery to capture our collective minds. So what he's saying is that it's a comparison thing. In comparison to our love for Jesus, it appears we don't love other people at all. When we, when we know the love we have for him and what he's expecting of us and what he has done for us all on its own, it would appear we don't love others the same way. And I think about, what about my real affections for my wife or my sons or my daughter-in-law or most of all, my daughter-in-law's dog? I love that dog. And that dog loves me. Am I supposed to dismiss that and say, nope, can't love the dog, can't love my kids, can't love my wife? I gotta be so, no, he's not talking about fake religious activity. He's talking about the heart we have because Jesus has been teaching us from the very beginning that when we get our love for God founded, it makes our love for everybody else a blessing. When we get that reversed, our love for a thing or a person can so overwhelm us that it doesn't meet their needs and it doesn't fulfill our hearts. There's a dangerous temptation to soften Jesus' words so that we fit into them, And we can't do that. Jesus' words stand for what they are. We have to change for them. Not just fit into them. The lordship of Jesus, if it's not our guiding voice, we will be listening to voices that overpromise and underdeliver. Jesus was asked the question, "Teacher, what's the greatest commandment?" And he said, "Love God with everything you are, and then you'll love others like you love yourself." When we get love for Jesus balanced first, it's an incredible big ask. A shocking level of love. But I want you to listen to how Jesus said it as recorded by Matthew in the 10th chapter of Matthew. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If you love something more than Jesus, by definition, it's an idol. Now, in America, we don't have people who have little statues on shelves and they sit on pillows and kneel and pray and burn things and offer sacrifices. So we hear the word idol and we think it's an antique word from an antique age that doesn't exist anymore. No, listen, by definition, an idol is anything you love more than God or anything you find your security in more than God. Jesus is asking us to abolish our idols and we have them all over our nation. We have them all over our our state. We have them all over this church. We idolize things. We place our security on things. We idolize our children and our children's happiness. We idolize the concept of marriage rather than the reality. We idolize our family, our friendships. We idolize sex. We idolize fortunes. We idolize fame. We idolize trophies. All of these things are given greater focus in our lives than the things or the person of Jesus and his kingdom. And Jesus said, when you love something more than you love me and you live your life for something more than me, you cannot be my disciple. And he's earned the right to ask for that, hasn't he? The cross. And all he's done for us, to ask anything of us, is not too much. To idolize is to replace the love of the giver of good with the gift of what is good. We must forsake loving anything more than Jesus, and when we do, we will find a love within us that blesses everyone in your life, including your enemy and including those who persecute you. See, this changes our perspective. What Jesus is wanting to do is change our perspective on how we see things. Because when the love of Christ is in us, the love of Christ will flow out of us. When we love Jesus foremost, It will create a love in us that is good for everyone we meet. Jesus requires a shocking level of love. He also requires undivided loyalty. And he's unashamed to ask for it. In verse 27, he says, Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, people today talk about carrying crosses. I, I hear it every now and then, and it's, it's cute. It doesn't make me angry or anything like that mattered. I just kind of find it amusing. You, you'll meet someone, and they're, all of a sudden, they had to work a holiday weekend. Well, it's just a cross I have to bear. Or they got hit for taxes this year. When the past two years, they escaped paying taxes. just a cross I have to bear. Right. The new favorite is, I was in an airplane, and the person in front of me reclined. Just a cross I have to bear. No. When Jesus used this expression... It wasn't some nominal inconvenience. Jesus audience when they heard these words, they knew exactly what he was asking. When you were carrying your cross, it wasn't eventual, it was immediate. You were going to die. It was a, a an instrument of execution. You didn't carry your cross to the place of your execution thinking about what you're going to have for dinner tomorrow night or where you're going to go here and how you're going to spend your 401k and and whether everyone appreciates you. When you're carrying your cross, you're already aware the end of the life you're living is happening. And Jesus says, when you follow me, the life you're living has to end to enter into the new life I'm offering you. You must die to self. Through the cross of Christ, we die to the life we're living, to the dreams, to the ambitions, to the goals. Now, having goals and dreams and ambitions isn't an evil thing, but it's our thing. If you look at your goals, dreams, and ambitions, most likely we're being self-centered. They're all about what makes me prosper, what blesses me, what makes my life more comfortable. Jesus said, no, you need to take up your cross and end that life and all the dreams and goals and plans that are self-centered, and trust me. Any takers? See, this is a point in time in this message where I know most of us, including the preacher of it, is getting to a point like, man, if someone would have told me this at the beginning, I don't know if I'd have said yes. Well, every day we say yes or no. Every day we say yes or no to loyalty to Jesus, an undivided loyalty. And in the midst of all of this, In verse 26, if you look at it, Jesus says that our love for him will cause us to appear to hate everyone else. And then it even says, even his own life. it has got to die. Living my life for Mark Christian has to end. I have to live my life for Jesus and choose him first and foremost in every choice I make. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's what undivided loyalty looks like. We're dead to all the self-centered things, and we become alive to all the Jesus-centered things. This changes our priorities. See, love changes our perspective, but loyalty changes our priorities. Then Jesus uses two interesting illustrations, so just track with me for a second. He said if you start to build a home or a building... And you just start to build because you want to build. And then you get halfway in it and realize you have no money and no chance of completing it. Isn't that a fool's game? To begin to do something and you did not count the cost as to whether or not you will complete it. And building a building is an interesting illustration because it takes effort. So if you'll allow me, I'd I'd like to, to share with you something that concerns me. And maybe it will concern your heart and awaken all of us. I hear the way people talk about The gift of salvation, and even the terminology we use, I I can't interpret every word you use, but when I hear it, it causes me to, to have great concern and pause. When I hear people say like, you know, I received Jesus. No, we don't receive Jesus, he receives us. We take a knee before him and he gives us life. What we receive is the joy and love of Christ for us by giving ourselves to him. It's work, it takes effort. If if we live in a country where it says, as long as you and I acknowledge that we are sinners and we acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross, that that's what Christianity is all about. And I want to tell you, Satan knows he's a sinner and Satan knows Jesus died on the cross and he's still going to face the judgment. Why? Because there was no repentance or response to that. There was no dedication to the cause of the kingdom and the king himself. You can't have Jesus just as savior. He has to be king and savior. This is how he offers himself to us. And then he also says, we're fighting a battle. I believe he's talking about a wartime mentality or a peacetime mentality. I know it's a goofy illustration, but here we go. When I was a kid, one of the things I admired, I love my mom for a bunch of reasons, but one of the things I love about my mom is, even in in her 80s, she still chews gum, and she blows bubbles And I love it. She snaps her gum. She blows bubbles. She's just youthful with gum. And I always tease her how why she liked gum so much. And she shared something. My mom was born in 1936, so she was eight, nine, and ten-ish when World War II was taking place. And my mom said for those four years, bubble gum was a luxury because you couldn't buy it. It wasn't available in the stores because they had to use the rubber base for the war efforts. And she said about once or twice a year, they would hear that the, the local grocery store had bubble gum and all the kids would beg for money and run down and buy as much as they could and savor it. My mom said she would chew gum for days. I must have been a rich kid because I'd chew it for about two hours, spit it out and grab another one to get flavor. And my mom told me about some lame song in the nineteen fifties, Does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? And she said that song was written because they did that. She would stick her gum on the bedpost and start chewing in the next day because it was such a luxury, she didn't want to waste the opportunity. And then she said one time she complained about not being able to have any gum. And she said, My my grandfather, her dad, looked at her and said, They need it more than we do, so we do without. That's a wartime mentality. When when you're fighting for survival, you don't ask the question, why do I have to? You ask the question, what if I did? What if I sacrificed this so that the war efforts would go well? You see, I think for many of us, we think we're living spiritually in a peacetime, and we've been mistaken. There is a war going around us for the souls of our neighbors, for the souls of our family, and for our own souls. It is a battle that will be waged every day. And when you live in peacetime, any sacrifice is met with, why should I have to? When you're living in wartime, every sacrifice is met, why wouldn't I? So the challenge Jesus is saying is to follow me. Understand that this is a war. Don't buy into that you're living in peace. And Jesus said, would you not, under war, make any sacrifices to win? And when you're building a house, wouldn't you make every sacrifice to complete it? And the answer is, of course we would. Undivided loyalty to the cause of the kingdom. Shocking love, undivided loyalty, Jesus requires total loss. Verse 33, he said, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. We're talking about houses and cars and clothes and technology? Yeah. And I think if there's one moment in time when I was writing this and doing my research, I thought, well, here's where the brakes get slammed. Because this is where it gets real, right? I can love Jesus, and that's kind of up to me to decide. I can be loyal to Jesus, and that's kind of up to my circumstances. When it comes to giving up everything, then that's measurable, tangible, and others will know if I did or didn't. I want you to understand something really clearly. I'm going to play with the words here for a second. Jesus does not say we have to get rid of everything. We do have to give up ownership of everything. So if you have technology, if you have houses, cars, clothes, luxuries, I'm not asking you to feel guilty. I'm asking you, are they available to the kingdom or are they only available in your kingdom? Can they be liquidated and used for the advance of the gospel? Is your 401k yours or is it available to God to advance the kingdom today? Is the money we spend on the things we don't need more important to us? Or should that money be liquidated? Now I know this is heartless the week before spring break. I'm going away too. I'm weighing the same thing. If I'm willing to spend this much money for a week to just get away for a couple of days, is that, is that same amount of money available to advance the message in Japan or through a Bible college student who's training to preach the word or to sponsor a young person to go on an event that may alter their focus of their life? See, what Jesus is saying is not you don't have to get rid of everything, but you have to give up ownership of everything. Just like he did when he came to earth. This changes our possessions. Love changes our perspective and loyalty changes our priorities and this changes our possessions. They're not mine anymore, they're his. And everything I have and everything I am is available to him. Whoever wrote the letter to the there were a Jew, group of Jewish Christians. They had Hebrew background, right? That's made them Jewish. And they had converted to following Jesus Christ, and someone wrote them this magnificent letter about showing them how much greater Jesus was than everything they abandoned. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, listen to these words carefully. It may fit today. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light? When you endured in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. The author is saying, everything that you've gone through to advance the kingdom, you will find is of greater value than anything you gave up to advance the kingdom. What happens because of the faithfulness of Christ Okay, now I need you to answer me a couple of questions here and try to do that out loud if that's okay. All right? Are you inundated with stuff? Yes. yes. Now some of you are like, yes. No, 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 don't, no shame. Let me try again for those of you who didn't understand what an out loud question needed to be answered with, okay? Are you inundated in your life with stuff? Yes. Is having stuff bad? <laughs> okay, follow the clues, all right? Do you often love stuff? Is loving stuff bad? It is the love of money that is the root of all evil, not money. Stuff in and of itself is neutral. If it's available for the kingdom, it's beautiful. If it's not available to anybody but yourself, it is idolatry and dangerous. And Jesus doesn't want you to not have stuff. He just doesn't want stuff to have you. And so he's offering us a better path, a better life. So maybe you're thinking, if I knew this when I started, I wouldn't have started. That's true. It's okay. Jesus isn't begging here. He is defining discipleship and inviting us to participate. So when he says, if you don't, you can't be, he's also implying, but if you did, you could be. This is not how bad we are. This is how much better we could be by becoming a disciple of Jesus. Let me explain how simple this works for me. The reason I'm unashamed to present it this way to us is because Jesus' love for us is no less shocking than the love he asks from us. He chose us above everything else. He chose us above his comfort. He chose us above his glory. He chose us, he gave us a superior love than we've ever experienced in our life. So comparing how I love Jesus to how I love fallible, broken people in my life, it's not even close. Not because of what I get, but because of who it was that gave it to me. The love that Jesus asks of us is no less shocking, or no more shocking than the love he gave us. Jesus' loyalty to us is no less undivided than the loyalty he seeks from us that he chose to give up the best parts of heaven to come to the worst parts of earth so that you and I could understand what loyalty was. He gave up so many beautiful things. And the plans and dreams and goals I have that, that make Mark Christian whatever he wants and desires to be, they all can die in comparison to what Jesus' goals, dreams, and visions for my life can be. It's trusting him. And Jesus' loss for us is no less submissive then the loss he seeks from us. I want you to just listen to some beautiful words that Paul writes about Jesus. Jesus being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and dying on a cross. Loss of everything. Remember, I told you already that this chapter is Luke recording what Jesus was saying to people as he headed toward the cross. When he went to give his life, he was asking for a love above all things as he was offering a love above all things. He was asking for a loyalty above all things as he remained loyal to the deadly task that was before him. He was asking for us to lose everything of no value so we could gain something of greater value. And how did he ask for that? He demonstrated it. The goal of his losing everything is that he might be a reward. He has defined what discipleship is. Is it defining you? It's the question of the morning. Too unreasonable? Out of the question? Possibly for you. But if it isn't, stepping into this will take a step of faith and it will deliver a reward of promise. Will you and I repent of a mindset in a world that has spoken into our lives that we can soften the words of Jesus to fit our condition and our desires. Will we rededicate ourselves to a renewed uh, perspective on his importance? To a kingdom-minded priority toward his goals? To the abandonment of the ownership of anything for the sake of the kingdom? Will we choose to love him first? To live for him and crucify our dreams and goals that accomplish nothing to bring glory and honor to his name? If we will repent, if we will dedicate and rededicate ourselves, he, we can be his disciples. That's what he's asking for. I've shared with our eldership this. And we've had quite a few conversations about this series. Not that we're scared of it, but we want to make sure that the messenger doesn't get in front of the message. That my tone or my illustrations don't cause you to go, I'm not going to do what Mark Christian says. Please don't ever do what I say. But when Jesus speaks, and if he should speak through me, please do that and let everything else fall away. But the question has been for me, my concern, is that someone will be sitting here in the next four or five weeks and they'll hear these words and they'll think, preacher, I don't even know from what you're saying. Am I saved? Let me put it this way. Salvation is not the thing. Jesus is the thing. If our concern is just getting to heaven, what good will heaven be if Jesus isn't there? See, this isn't about Jesus giving us a gift and forgetting the giver. This is about getting the greater gift than just salvation. It's not about one day going to heaven. It's about having a real, live, interactive presence with Jesus Christ himself. Because wherever Jesus is, that's where heaven is. And to try to go to a place where you don't need him to be with you when you go is probably not going to end up being heaven. So I want us to ask the right questions. Do you have Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Are you dedicating your loyalty to Jesus? Would you lose everything for Jesus? Because then you and I will discover what it means to be a disciple. You see, Jesus didn't say you couldn't be a disciple. He did say, however, you couldn't be his disciple. He has defined what a disciple is. Has that definition defined us? Because if it hasn't, today's a day of renewal. Today's a day of repentance. Today's a day for every single one of us, whether you've never followed Jesus, whether you're a young person like beautiful Madison this morning, who just made a pledge at a young age. And when I hear her confession, I believe every word of it. She needs us to walk with her through the trials that will come in following Christ. She's not on her own. And some of us have walked alone, and we need to walk in community. We need to be strengthened in community, and we need to hold each other to a higher standard. Let's not let our culture diminish what Jesus said. Let's live out what Jesus said and discover heaven here on earth, where God gets whatever God wants, and we find Christ. Let's stand together.